Hey everybody and welcome to Libromancy, a podcast about the magic of books. Today I'm going to be talking about The Fangs of Freeland by Drew Hayes. This is the fourth book in the Fred the Vampire Accountant series. So let's freelance with the magic of books. I'd like to say that uh, probably by this point, if you haven't read the previous three, you're going to want to go back and read those first before you uh, start to try and read this book. While understandable and it gives enough introduction and characterization, you know who's who and what's what. It'll be a lot easier for you and a lot better if you have a little bit more of the backstory going on. Because this book changes a lot of things. There's a lot, a lot of growth in this book. And without knowing about it beforehand, some things are going to feel off or weird to you. So that's just my recommendation. I think the other books up to this one you could read by read on their own and they would work just fine again this book is a series of five short stories that have been combined into one and again in every beginning first chapter first page you're going to get a little bit of introduction a reminder as to who all these characters because our cast is growing a little bit bigger and so we are separating the stories out so that not everyone's combined restore which is a really good practice so I think we're just going to get into it now. Let's talk about story number one. Story number one is our interview at the agency because at the end of the last book, Fred has signed himself up to be a freelance accountant for the agency uh, in an attempt to secure a little bit more freedom for himself from the clan of Uva. So he gets the call. They have to fly out immediately. The test, uh, we meet Roderick, who's kind of like the head accountant for the agency. And he has a you know, we sense that everybody there has something going on with them. We don't know exactly what, but we you know we know that he kind of has like a lie sense where he can tell if somebody's lying, which is very good for an interview, of course. Like that would be great. They meet June and September again. They uh, that was nice. Um, obviously, he's gonna pass the interview. That was great. Roger was talking with Fred afterwards, and he's like, "Yeah, that was a real stumper of a, a problem we threw at you, and you successfully exploited and used several loopholes that are in the parahuman system that you'd have never encountered if you were a, you know, just a regular old accountant and hadn't actually put in the time to study." And he's like, "Well, yeah, like I just want to be an accountant and like live my life. I don't want all these crazy things to keep happening to me." And He's like, well, you know, if you have to look at it from our perspective, we see a newly turned vampire all alone forming connections with all of the most powerful and strongest people in his area and growing those connections and those relationships stronger and stronger. And then he forms his own clan and invites all of them to be members of it. Now, if that wouldn't sound a little suspicious to anybody, then you're wrong. That is suspicious. He, but he says, you know, hey, I, I believe you, like, you're either the best liar I've ever seen, ever, or you're just a simple guy who wants to do accounting and live a good life, and circumstances have messed you up, and that's, you know, exactly what it was. We even learned that uh, the agency has received some complaints about Fred's clan, uh, just that he allowed non-members in, and the agency was like, no, he did the work, He they crossed all your T's, you dotted all your I's, like, you are good, you're... As far as on our end, everything you've done is great. So he said he gets sent back home. Work will be coming soon. Who knows when? So be ready. So let's move on to our second book in this story, The Assessment of the Castle. Now in this story, Fred gets his first call to do some freelance accounting for the agency. He's being called to investigate castle where they just defeated a mage. And he just needs to evaluate everything and determine value so they can go to the next of kin. 
Fred shows up there, taking along Albert and Neil with him. They are going around, you know, investigating things. And I love this. They found three first edition copies of uh, The Call of Cthulhu, which was just funny, right? But that kind of hints at you like, hey, hey, you know what's coming up. If you have uh, know anything about Cthulhu, you know what's going to happen. So we're looking at it. They're going through stuff. They're organizing things. Neil really shows his comp- his competence in this book. We really see oh, Neil's growth. Oh, and on a side note, I forgot one of the most important things in the, sec- in the first book. At the end of the first book, Fred comes home. And he's talking to Albert, the zombie who's drawn the sword of the Forgotten Champion, the Weapon of Destiny. And he's like, Albert, you have a Weapon of Destiny. I need to allow you to be out in the world. And I need to push you to this change. Now, you don't have to leave right now. And you can keep working here as an accountant for me. But when you feel the call and you feel the need to go out and do whatever it is you need to do, you know, go out and do it. And you don't have to give your answer now. And you don't have to leave if you don't want to. But I don't want to be the one holding you back because it's nice and easy and comfortable with me here doing accounting work. So, for again, back to the second book. Just uh, showing that Albert and Neil have both, that they've both really grown in this time period and kind of been practicing. And now we get to see them use their abilities and their skills. Where we've known of Fred's competence this whole time. He's very competent at accounting. This assessment is no trouble for him. But the problem for him is what's left over at the castle where Neil and Albert show up and really put forth their ability. So as they're going around, they determine that there is, they find a candle, focus as Neil calls it, and he says this is kind of a spell that the wizard has been going and it really shouldn't still be going but it is so let's take care of this so he wards off the candle and then he says all right now we need to split up and find some more candles they'll be around something similar to these candles where their focus is of magic you can kind of sense it when you get closer but he actually sends them off with wards to protect them because they don't know what's going on and then they find out that there's the ghost of the mage is still around that when june and september uh, killed the mage he was able to stick around and be a ghost because he is a planomancer, which, if you didn't guess, he can open up portals to another plane. And I guess he finally found the plane that has weird creatures that want to just kill and destroy the world because that's what happened when he got, that's what got him killed. So he's trying to take over, you know, to finish a spell to complete the summoning. And, you know, luckily they're able to grab the three. They bring him back, and this was quite an impressive feat here. You remember in when Albert first draws the sword, he does the test, and he, he cuts the magic with it because he doesn't want to hurt anybody with the sword. Well, the sword is... The ghost does not want to leave. The ghost wants to stay and destroy the world and won't move on, and he can't force it. And so Albert cuts the ghost with the sword of the Forgotten Champion, and instead of killing the ghost and just destroying it, it cuts away all the bad and the negative parts of the ghost, allowing the ghost to freely choose to move on. And that was just a great, you know, scene, a great ability. He realizes, you know, Albert realizes, hey, if I can do this, you know, how many other ghosts are there out there that I need to be helping, that I, I can help? And then, you know, if I'm just staying at your accounting firm, that's me being selfish. So he's still around and he doesn't leave 100%, but... You know, he is going to fulfill his destiny now, so that was great. Just loved that. The next story, story number three, is the appraisal at a carnival. 
Richard, the head of the Therians, has called Fred in order to do an assessment of a carnival that one of his clan members wants to build up and make functional again. They go there, they start investigating some things. You know, it's not as bad as it could be. Side note, Sally, Richard's daughter, and Gideon are there because Gideon promised Sally to take her on some rides. So Gideon obviously is just using his own power to make the rides work because they are really old and really worn down. But So they're, they're working. They notice that there are other people there. They kind of can sense them, but they haven't, don't get a, mat, a beat on them right away. And then they realize, and this was funny, that these are not parahumans trying to stalk them out and trick them or hurt them. They're just regular old meth dealers. <laughs> yep, just regular old meth dealers using the carnival as like a cover and a hiding place so that they could cook all their meth and do whatever they want and be safe. And they're like, what? They're, they're not parahumans? And they, you know, start beating them up. But then uh, Sally shows up and the gangsters turn their guns on Sally. And if you're not following along, that was a bad, bad decision. <laughs> Fred even notes in the book, he's like, well, the guy, guy had just sentenced him and his whole crew to death just by pointing a gun at Sally. So Gideon obviously prevents her from getting shot, but he's going to straight up kill them all because that's what Gideon does when Sally makes him promise that he won't kill anybody and no more blood. And so Gideon, in the truest, the uh, truest stick to the letter of the law as possible, he does not inflict any more physical damage on them psychological damage and emotional damage i don't know if you could survive they are pretty much catatonic by the time the cops show up he gives them a speech that you get and it is amazing he talks to their souls and you can feel that like from fred's perspective of course that he's just getting the side spillover of this and it's still affecting him and the regular meth dealers are just blown away oh, it was so great and then Afterwards, Richard's like, well, I guess I'm not going to invest in the carnival after all. And, Rich and Fred's like, oh, no, 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 wait, you probably should invest in it. I want to invest in it, too. This could be a great carnival. You can have regular people, and then you can, even around Halloween, you can make it a parahuman carnival so that the parahumans can come out in costume and roam around and experience things like normal. And then Sally can have a, a place to come every year as well, and so that's kind of the point. But that's kind of the, the progression of that, but just a great little story, very short, very sweet. The scene with Gideon was just straight up amazing. So the uh, next story, our fourth, is actually about Amy. And so you can see kind of in these stories how the first one's mostly about Fred and Albert a little bit, and then Fred and Albert and Neil, and now we've got Richard and Bubba and Fred, of course. And now this next one we're doing, we're talking with Amy the mage that trained Neil, and her contract is kind of up for renegotiation now that Fred is the head of her house. They meet with uh, Cindy, who is a grand mage, and Cindy is stuck in the past. She sends a bright gold limousine to pick Fred up and drive him to where they go, and she gets uh, only the best imported sunlight, and somehow, wherever she has her house set up, the imported sunlight does not burn him like it normally would. So because uh, Amy is a member of Fred's vampire clan, he gets kind of final say on all of her negotiations. You know, his plan was just, I'll just go in, you know, we'll say everything's fine. 
we're going to be done with this. And Amy, of course, doesn't care. She's like, yeah, whatever. It's just money. As long as I get enough to keep working and keep investigating and experimenting, that's fine. And then, you know, he realizes in the media, like, hey, they're trying to rush this. There must be something bad in those contracts. Give me those contracts. So he gets them, he reads them, and then he decides, oh, no, I am not going to let this pass. We are renegotiating her contracts right now. And you know, Cindy is not extremely pleased about that, but she kind of had it coming, knew it was coming. And so she has them enter like a secret time space where it's the power of your mind kind of idea. Not to do battle, of course, but just to hammer out the contracts. And this is a, a great boon for Fred. He's like, oh, you just have to think about it and it'll pair. Then boom, he gets, you know, newly written contracts right in his hand full of all the good deals. Uh, it's quite great. And you learn at the end of this one that, you know, Cindy is proud of Amy for getting her clan leader to stand up for her. She's happy for her. She wants her to do this. But she says that a lot of mages, the, let's see, how do they put it? The best mages are the ones that kind of fight the system a little bit because they know they're worth more and they know they're going to need the money to change it and to help others later on. And so she's, you know, really proud of Amy for doing that and take, letting Fred take that step for her and and with her and you know that one's just nice self-contained no real things that change anything else in this book at all but uh, still a good story to have and this is going to be our last book in this series of stories and in this story fred is again called upon by the agency to do some freelance work but this time he is called to do freelance at an active base of aggression so they have a specific base somewhere of course never mentioned where and they ha he has to do inventory there. Now, Arch knows that something's up. And he says, this ain't going to fly. There's no reason for a freelancer to be called into this specific base. While they have active missions going on, I'm going to go with you and be your bodyguard. And you run. If anything happens to me, if I'm shot in the head, anything besides a shot in the head, you're fine. Just if I get shot in the head, you run. And so we're kind of like... I was hoping, I was like, okay, this is the story. We get to learn a little bit more about Arch. Yeah, I'm excited. Give me some more of his backstory. Well, obviously, when Fred starts doing inventory, he's finding that everything's okay. They've got plenty of this. they got plenty of that. He's doing his work. And then the agents who are there are called off to an attack of ghouls. And who do we know that likes to use ghouls for their dirty work? That's right. It's Quinn, his vampire dad. I was going to say Vamp Daddy, but just don't feel comfortable calling him that. So Quinn is back, and he is assaulting the compound. Fred and Arch go on the defensive. They try and hide. They take care of themselves. As Quinn is slowly taking over the base of operations, we see Beauregard, the vampire that we thought Crystal had killed in the first book, is back, and he is monstrous. He has armor implanted inside of him which is ooh bad that would be very painful but makes him extremely resilient to bullets so they are running around and arch goes down and he gets his head chopped off by a vampire and fred of course is captured after that and quinn is using a necklace that increases the bond between the sire and the child of the vampire but Again, because of all that magic that Fred had run through him, it doesn't work. Thank goodness. And then, when that doesn't work, and Quinn's like, what? Why didn't that work? Arch comes back and he starts shooting. So, I'm glad that Arch isn't dead. And we learn a little bit, because we get a tiny POV from Arch, 
basically saying I can recover from anything. Decapitation or a headshot, those are my least favorites because I lose 10 to 30 seconds of, of time that I could have had. And uh, this was a funny thing. He's like, I learned early on when I got this ability to not immediately stand back up. Because when you die and you immediately stand back up, they shoot you again. And then you're even worse off than you were before. So I've also gotten into the habit of really holding on tight to my guns when I die so they don't fall out of my hands. Just hilarious and funny. Of course, Quinn gets away, but that's okay for another day. I hope that they can eventually stop him. As much as I love having him be the recurring villain, I'd much rather see someone new or a new threat that he needs to solve rather than just this one vampire that is extremely talented in escaping. And then near the end, Arch, of course, is like, hey, I'm going to figure this out. You know, who put you in danger? Why you got called? We're going to figure out who, you know, Quinn traded a favor to. So that's going to wrap up our discussion of Fangs of Freelance today. Thanks for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really enjoyed reading it. Please give a, give me a like and a review wherever you listen to this. And, of course, if you have any questions or comments or something you think I should have talked about but I missed, you know, leave me a, send me something at libromancypod at gmail.com. And remember to freelance with the magic of books. <laughs>